Welcome to A Complete History of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films. And I will be joined on this walk down memory lane by Paddy Barclay, legendary football writer and um, author as well. We'll be taking you on this journey through Old Trafford history. If you're watching this video, please give it a like and subscribe and join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give a review on the platform that you're listening on as well. In the last episode, we looked at the 1949-50 season and today we're going to move on to the 50-51 campaign. Um, as Paddy reminded me in the notes just after we finished recording the last episode, before we get any angry letters in on postcode, postcards, Louis Rocker did in fact die in the June and not the July, as I stated in the episode. Um, just to clear things up, make sure that no one um, is getting me on the technicalities there. I did know that, obviously, but obviously a little, little bit of a slip in the notes. Um, so, United, as we talked about in the last episode, Paddy, they were on a post-season tour of America. Busby was taking the club go global. And some of the players um, decided to get a few ideas above their, not above the station, but they got ideas. They were lured away by the promise of greater riches and... There's a chap called Percy Wynn, wasn't it? Who, who basically yes, and his spanner was thrown into the works. Yeah, well, Percy Wynn, Wynn was, a, I suppose, an early super agent. Very little is known of him, um, and there are very few references to him that I was able to to source. But um, he was an English agent. He was engaged. I presume he'd met. We're talking about Colombia, where it's it's a it's a quite seismic or felt like it a moment in the history of world football, because Colombia had formed a rebel league with no transfer fees and huge wages. The uh, the league was the brainchild of a young man called Luis Robledo, who uh, was Colombian but had been brought up at a public school and then Cambridge University in England. He then, um, after leaving Cambridge, uh, he spent his time, well, his leisure time, certainly, when he wasn't playing polo uh, at presumably Cowdery Park or one of these posh venues. He was going up to Highbury to watch Arsenal, a great sports fan, great Anglophile. And uh, presumably, I can only speculate that he engaged Percy Wynn to uh, recruit English players for this new, highly lucrative, for the players on the face of it, uh, Colombian breakaway league. It was excluded by FIFA um, because, you, you know, it was paying you know, huge wages and, 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 and clearly wanted to go its own way. And um, so, obviously, that was uh, a problem for Luis Robledo. He made some great signings in uh, Latin America, uh, notably, probably the best player in the world at that time, Alfredo Di Stefano, um, still rated by, by history historians as arguably a challenger to Pelé as the greatest player of all time. Um, and someone with whom Manchester United will have quite a relationship in the years to come. But for now, he's a young player dazzling the world and um, 
Robledo managed to sign him for his club, uh, which was Independiente of Santa Fe. Uh, no, sorry, I beg your pardon. Di <coughs> um, Stefano signed for uh, Milanarios. Uh, but uh, Independent of Santa Fe was the club which courted English players and naturally had their eyes on Manchester United's players. They did actually sign a marvellous centre-half called Neil Franklin from Stoke City, along with his club colleague George Mountford. Um, Franklin was apparently a wonderful footballing centre-half and he signed. Uh, and then they set their eyes on the stars of Manchester United, and that meant England squad members. Bear in mind, this is also as if FIFA didn't have enough to worry about. This was a World Cup summer. The World Cup was being played in Uruguay, and it was um, at last England were taking part. And of course, with Manchester United being a leading team, they were represented with two players, John Aston and uh, Henry Coburn. And a lot of Judges thought that although there were great wingers around at the time in England, Tom Finney, Stanley Matthews, all-time great wingers, uh, that Charlie Mitten, the Manchester United outside left, was unlucky not to get into the World Cup squad. So Charlie Mitten was not in the squad, uh, though Coburn and uh, Aston were, when United uh, left Southampton on the Queen Mary for New York at the start of this what was to be momentous um, uh, American tour. And Mitten um, was lured by the money, wasn't he? I mean, there was yes, a well, in there that, was it something like he could earn more in weeks than he could in years? Yes, that's right. Well, what, what, what uh, as, as I say, the money was massive. To try and put it in perspective, the rumours when United arrived in New York and Captain Johnny Carey was asked about it, there were rumours and... He said, well, look, you know, I mean, the players can earn something like three and a half thousand pounds in a year. Uh, at that time, well, at the end of the season that we are talking about, 50-51, uh, the players went on to, to a basic minimum in England, uh, maximum, should I say, maximum of 700. So that's a fifth of what they could earn. That rumour turned out to be untrue because, in fact, I, I real underestimate because when the deal was finally put before Mitten and uh, bear in mind that Wynn had put Mitten in touch with Luis Robledo, the uh, rich and aristocratic um, brains behind the league. Um, Robledo was actually introduced by um, by Neil Franklin, the English centre-half, in a telephone call while Mitten was in New York towards the end of the tour. It had been a, a great tour. The, the, the players had really enjoyed themselves. By the way, they'd gone from New York. To, I mean, it was a whistle-stop tour. But they <coughs> spent plenty of time in Hollywood, where they met Clark Gable, the great star. Can I just tell you, before we carry on with the narrative, I must tell you what I think is a funny story. The big macho centre-half, um, uh, United's, um, what was his name? You've got it. It comes from Hull or uh, up there. The United's Alan B. Chilton. Yeah. Alan B. Chilton, big, formidable man, bluff, um, sort of Yorkshire, northeast uh, guy. Uh, when they go to Hollywood, they met, among the stars they met, was a famous villain 
from films. He was always played the villain. I, I never got to find out his name, but he was a villain. And uh, so Chilton, typical cheeky footballer, says to him, hey, lad, he says, I've, I've hissed you in the cinema many a time. <laughs> the guy who'd obviously heard this millions of times before said, it's a living. And, <laughs> and so there was all that. There was lots of fun. You know, there was... Um, they had some great experiences and meeting the great stars like Clark Gable and so on was was a, was a thrill for the United players. But anyway, to go back to the narrative, Charlie Mitten takes the phone call towards the end of the tour in his New York hotel, and he, he says, "Well, could I ha come and have a look around before?" And he's, by the way, he'd already been told what the wages were, and there were three times what Carey thought. In a year with his bonuses and that, uh, he could make £10,000, right? This is at a time when the maximum wage for a top footballer in England was 700 right? So on top of that, there'd be a house with staff to help, you know, to... You know, do the cooking and living uh, up for his wife Betty. And there were three children as well. No English school, but uh, they could still go to a good school. And um, you know, a great way of life. Mitten, um, uh, was a great gambler. Ended up owning a racehorse. Anyway, I'm going ahead of myself because I'm getting to the to the end of the story. He says, "Can I can I have a look around?" And this is right at the end of the tour, and the. Um, the Robledo says at the desk of the Times Square Hotel where you're staying tomorrow morning will be a ticket and you'll be met uh, Robledo met him at Bogota Airport and uh, Mountford and uh, Franklin the ex-Stoke players were there and uh, sure enough it was great he went back said to Busby you know it's fantastic and by Mitten's account Busby, when he heard what the money was, he says, do they need a manager? You know, joking. And um, half joking anyway. And he says, uh, according, this is all according to Mitten. He says, at the end of it, he says, well, I suppose you better go because if you don't, you, you, oh, sorry, this was before he goes. And he, he, he says, um, if, if you don't go, you'll die wondering. So, Mitten goes, comes back, and Busby says, this time, if you go, you'd be in trouble. Because the, the problem was, because it was an illegal league, there couldn't yeah. be a transfer. So United wouldn't be getting a fee for a player who was worth well above £20,000. You know, big, big money in those days uh, in the transfer market. So they, the United says, you're being held to your contract. And he... Mitten said, well, I haven't signed the contract yet because the contracts were renewed every summer. Yeah. Uh, however, this was not uh, accepted when finally he went. He took, uh, took the money and uh, initially everything was great. The wonderful lifestyle out there. Uh, and... Uh, and in fact, after Uruguay had won the World Cup, shocking Brazil in the Maracanã Stadium in the crucial match, um, they, Uruguay went to play a friendly in Colombia, and Colombia were allowed to, well, they were law unto themselves. They used 
um, guest players who included Alfredo Di Stefano and Charlie Mitten. And it was from one of Charlie Mitten's pinpoint crosses that Di Stefano scored one of the goals in a 3-1 victory for Colombia. So everything seemed great. He was on top of the world and he was earning enough to make sure that he never had to do coaching kids. He used to coach school kids in Manchester in the summer to bump up his wages um, to provide a better life for Betty and the three kids. None of that anymore. It was a life of luxury and he was playing well and, and everything seemed fine. And he, despite Busby saying, well, you know, you, you burned your boats, more or less, Despite that, he sent a letter, presumably intended for publication, it was published, by Tom Jackson of the Manchester Evening News, saying, um, uh, by the way, you know, the season, there's a close season in, in the English winter, so I'll be free to play for United in November, December, January. Well, he was, dream on, Charlie, you know, it, that was never going to happen. Um, and worse was to come. Yeah, obviously, I mean, we say that it was never going to happen. That was partly due to Bilby sort of laying a disciplinarian sort of... Yes. There, but also... Yeah, you, you, you'll remember that, in, you know, in the previous year, um, he, he'd sacrificed one of his best players. I mean, yeah. he certainly loved Charlie Mitten. He, he thought he was one of the best players he'd ever managed. He said that at the end of his career, must be. And he got rid of Johnny Morris, that you know, one of the stars of the FA Cup win in 1948. He got rid of Johnny Morris when Johnny Morris def def defied him on the training pitch. This time, it was Charlie Mitten defying him in career terms um, and in terms of his registration. Yeah. And once again, um, there, there was to be only one winner. Yeah, um, and also the, the other thing would, would have been with these players taking the step out of the jurisdiction of the game, um, they would be yes. liable to be sanctioned and suspended. Um, oh, yeah. So Absolutely, but I suppose they felt, you know, with the kind of money they're getting, um, they could take that chance. And, yeah. and, uh, and uh, but very few of them survived it. Some did, some didn't. And Charlie was to be one of the ones whose career took uh, a distinctly downward turn um, after it. But the, you know, the season carried on. He, he, he was playing in Colombia, but United had to start and they didn't have an, an outside left. Yeah. You know, but Busby admitted he'd been taken by surprise by this because he thought, you know, they would follow the, the Carey line and the line that Coburn had asked them. Uh, Coburn was tempted, but he, his mum was not too well. There were family problems, so he didn't want to leave Manchester. But it was... He'd, he'd gambled on on keeping uh, Charlie Mitten, and, and Charlie Mitten didn't go, which meant because uh, the, the right winger J Jimmy Delaney was thirty six. Mitten was still in his prime, but Jimmy Delaney was thirty six and, and more or less no longer a first teamer by then. So he'd lost these two great wingers, who um, from the forty eight team, and uh, that was a big big problem. And uh, he had to just make, he decided just to make do he, because he didn't like uh, going, you know, he was always averse to splashing out in the transfer market unless he had to.
Yeah, and and one occasion where he did have to was early on in the season that he earmarked the money for a goalkeeper with the problems yeah. that he had with Jack Crompton, obviously brought in yeah. two or three games throughout each season in the previous years. Uh, but this yeah. time, I mean, people talk about the world record fees that were spent for goalkeepers by United and they talk about Fabian Bortes as yeah. uh, one and Harry Gregg another one. But one who never gets mentioned is the name of Arthur Reginald Allen, £11,000 a Londoner from QPR Paddy. Yeah, it was, uh, it was not... He was a good goalkeeper, English goalkeeper, Londoner, played for QPR, uh, but he was 31. Yeah. Uh, but must be quite rightly uh, realised at that time that 31's, you know, not necessarily a bad age for a goalkeeper. And he needed a, a fit one. Um, but Busby reckoned he'd, he'd got... The answer to this long term, longer, medium term answer, let's say, to his goalkeeping problem. Remember that he tried to persuade Frank Swift, his friend and uh, the goalkeeper that he loved, uh, to come out of retirement or retirement, uh, to come out of journalism with the news of the world. And that had his final failure to land Frank Swift, uh, made him pay, as you rightly say, a world record fee of £11,000 the QPR for Reg Allen. Yeah, and the um, the case of Jimmy Delaney, as you mentioned, Jimmy, a great servant to United, 184 appearances, 28 goals, a, a veteran would come into the side and obviously um, taken to life at United very comfortably indeed, but now 36, he moves to Aberdeen in November. Yeah. Obviously, on that right-hand side, Busby would have been planning for that, um, but the imbalance that came from Mitten's um, departure yes. created a real problem for United. And really that contributed to this very difficult start to the season. And you look at the season in in mm. two different ways, really, because 1950 and 1951 are sort of like a game of two halves, basically. You've got mm. six games lost by December the 2nd, very miserable Christmas indeed, losing on the 23rd, 25th and 26th of December. Yeah, but January 1951 signals a, a whole new era altogether. I mean, there's a really good line in that was in the Daily Herald from George Follows where he talks about the real opening of the floodlit era, which yes. referred to what was happening at the cliff. Yes, the um, the floodlights have been installed there, which now enabled Jimmy Murphy and Bert Wally to engage more actively with training the junior players on Tuesday and Thursday nights. Mm. Uh, he was having some good success with the kids. And putting them forward to Busby, and one of the two, one or two of them, like we've seen already, have been coming into the team. You like to Jeff Whitefoot, and a couple of others we'll mention in this episode. Um, he would have to wait another year or so for the authorities and the actual sport to catch up and give Murphy and Wally a, a proper testing ground for the kids. Mm-hmm. But for now, it was a case of seeing what they were made of in the reserves and as individuals, and then giving them the chance in the first team. Um, as for United, obviously that terrible start of the first team uh, meant that they weren't in the running for the league, but they recovered to finish second. And uh, if they were pinning hopes on the cup, uh, Paddy, they were disappointed at Birmingham. A really interesting story. Uh, I mean, yes. many, many years later, they'd be talking about a visit to the Midlands where people would say, you'll never win anything with kids. But mm. crazy to think that in 1951, a similar story was being uh, told. Yes, only a, only a few miles across Birmingham at St Andrews. United were knocked out of the cup, and Birmingham was second division at that time. So it was a, it was quite a, quite a shock. And uh, Busby began to come under a lot of criticism, and he admitted, you know, in, in an interview with a with a magazine, 
Um, he admitted, yeah, we were taken aback by the mitten business. We did not expect to, to lose him. We were shocked, in fact, he said. <clears throat> and he said, but, you know, I don't believe in going out and spending, but I believe we'll come good in the end. And um, sure enough, he, he did come under criticism for, for using too many kids. Um, but only a week after the Birmingham debacle, um, they beat Arsenal 3-1. And in that team were Billy Redman, a, a young lad, and then two even younger lads, Jeff Whitefoot, who we've already spoken about, and Mark Jones, a, a giant, also 17, 17 years of age, but a, already a giant from Yorkshire. Uh, and a player was to, who was to have a large part in, in United's history. They came in, um, in the Arsenal match, you know, we've, we've talked before, at this time, if an international match, it was played concurrently with the league programme. So Alan B. Chilton made his debut at 32 uh, for England, and Aston was also away. So the sprinkling of kids in, in Busby's side, and they beat Arsenal. And what's more, as you rightly say, they then made it a totally different season by going on a fantastic run in their final 17 matches with no cup distractions. They won 14, drew two, and lost only one. So, it, this, in, a, in a sense, Busby had been proved right. We will come right in the end. And no longer were people saying, um, is he the right man for the job? Which they had been after the, uh, in midwinter after the Birmingham defeat. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, yeah, it was accused of using too many kids with Birch and Burkett in the team at Birmingham. Yes, Brian the, Birch problem, and... the problem yeah. was the uh, rescheduling of the entire lineup because you had Aston at centre forward, who was doing an admirable job, but he'd had to move. Rowley was now playing at outside left. Kerry had to play a few games at left back. So mm. it wasn't just the two or three kids who were coming into the side. It was all this sort of. Um, Messing around with the team that were co that was causing this destabilisation, basically. Yes. Um, yeah. So really, to, <clears throat> to finish second, and how many times the United finished second since since Busby uh, took over uh, in, in nineteen in forty six seven? It it it, 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 oh, it seemed to be almost their natural place in the scheme of things. But actually, after the midwinter they had, it was a terrific performance to finish second. Second, incidentally, to Tottenham who were in their first season back in the uh, top division. And what's more, they were under Arthur Rowe. And you may remember Arthur Rowe from previous episodes because Arthur Busby had been the manager of an all-star team during the war, player manager of an all-star team during the war that had entertained the troops. And uh, his Arthur Rowe had been his assistant. And you also will remember from a previous episode that Busby was offered the Spurs job he turned it down. Arthur Rowe got it. And Arthur Rowe, with a push-and-run style, um, is absolutely, in a way, up there with, with, with Busby. Uh, and in fact, he succeeded Busby. Uh, in his first season back, Spurs win the league with this dazzling push-and-run football, um, which absolutely from the Busby songbook. Um, so, uh, it, it, in a way, Busby wouldn't have minded finishing second to them. 
Um, the third were Blackpool, who also got, got reached the cup final. They're losing to Newcastle United. Newcastle were to become probably the cup, FA Cup team of the 1950s. But Blackpool, for the consistently good performances in league and cup, uh, this was rewarded with the Footballer of the Year award uh, going to their uh, team leader very much so, Harry Johnston. Yeah. Um, United, like as Paddy mentioned there, it's four runners-up in five seasons and then yeah. a fake winner's medal as well to go along with that. So in a time where, we, as we've gone over, Portsmouth won the league twice, Spurs have won it, Arsenal have won it, there's never really a period of domination there, but United are, like, I guess, as close to a team dominating in terms of league achievement because they're consistent yeah. second, which is really interesting to look at and a really good sort of platform considering what Busby's moving forward with in, in the near future. We'll be coming on to discuss. Let's run through the squad as we always do. Uh, Reg Allen does become first-choice goalkeeper this season, uh, edging out Jack Crompton. Jack makes just two appearances in the league. Reg Allen making the other 48 and 44 in all appearances for in the Cup. Um, Johnny Carey, club captain, 39 appearances, four in the FA Cup, 43 in all competitions. Tommy Lowry, just one appearance in the Cup. Tom McNulty playing at right back, mostly because Carey moves to left. But he only plays five appearances. Um, earlier on, Paddy mentioned Billy Redman. He was a youngster coming into the team. He was a fullback through the United system, predominantly left-sided, so Carey was playing back at right back. He made his debut in October and he made 18 appearances, 16 in the league. Alan B. Chilton made 42 in all appearances, 38 in the league, um, stepping out for Mark Jones, who we'll come on to in a moment. Henry Coburn, 35 appearances in the league, 39 in all competitions. Then we come on to Don Gibson, who joined United as an amateur in 1946. He's been pro since 1947. He made his debut against Bolton in the August and uh, made 35 appearances in all competitions, 32 in the league. Don Gibson is going to be a name who comes back quite frequently in this series and in the future as well. Very interesting character. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned Mark Jones earlier, the 17-year-old Barnsley. Well, look at the size of him in this picture. Yeah. You can <laughs> already see what a unit he is. Um, just four appearances. Um, the... Story about how Mark Jones was invited to United. He was invited to Old Trafford by Louis Rocker in 1948. Rocker told him to bring his father and to look out for Joe Armstrong at the bus station. Don't leave the bus station until he sees you, Rocker told him. Mm. The trial went well, and obviously two years later in the year, summer of 1950, um, Jones signed his professional terms. He had been desperate to play for United because his hero was Alan B. Chilton. And uh, Jones's first game for United came against Sheffield Wednesday. He took Chilton's number five shirt and his hero congratulated him for the achievement. Uh, Chilton obviously was frustratingly reliable and it restricted Jones to a handful of appearances over the next few seasons for in this season for Jones. But all of those were convincing wins. Um, Billy McGlenn, 26 appearances, 27 in all appearances. And then this chap, Ed McElhinney, yeah. Born yeah. in Scotland, mm -hmm. he makes just two appearances this season for United. They're the, the uh, only two that he ever made for United at halfback. Mm. Um, he had USA nationality as well. He was transferred, actually, from the Philadelphia Nationals. He'd come over um, yeah. from um, that summer tour. 
So you could argue that his appearance on August 19th against Fulham made him the first ever foreign United player. But uh, he doesn't go down in the record books, and that's very definitely a technicality, that one. No, but it's an interesting one. He played, as you rightly say, for the United States in their um, earthquake of a 1-0 victory over England in the World Cup at the the beginning of the season. And uh, United had brought him home with them in the almost in their baggage. But as soon as they chucked him into the, uh, the pre- I was going to say the Premier League, into the first division of English football, it became clear that he, 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 he was going to sink, not swim. And uh, so, as you say, that tells its own story, two appearances. And yet, in a way, you know, how people always say you, you should never sign a player after a major tournament. And it was invoked, I think, Perhaps a little unkindly in the case of Karol Poborski and Jordi Cruyff, who were signed after the 1996 European Championship. Uh, maybe Ed McIlvenny was, rather than being the first foreign signing, he was the first example of never sign a player on the basis of a dazzling summer tournament. But um, no, I, I, I mean, to be serious, uh, I would still stick with the Carlo Sartori uh, version, although Carlo Sartori was, who we'll come on to much, much later, um, was born in Italy, in the north of Italy. Uh, he was brought up in Collyhurst, and if you met him, you certainly thought he was a Collyhurst lad. And um, But I think he probably has a much stronger claim having been born in Italy, to being United's first foreign player than, than Eddie McIlvenny has. <laughs> um, the rest of the team... So, McIlvenny played at half-back. He played his two games wearing the number four shirt, so he's playing at right half. Um, the next in line was Jeff White, for obviously another half-back. Um, he only played two appearances this season. John Aston, senior. He did play, obviously, a little bit at left-back, but... He's predominantly playing in the number nine shirt this season, um, centre forward, uh, and obviously trying. This was to allow Roley to fill um, uh, the, the 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 boots of Charlie Mitten on the left side. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. And, and Aston, you know, performed admirably. Scored 15 goals in 41 league games, 40, mm. uh, 45 appearances, 16 in all competitions, and then you had the number of forward players who were given. Basically, prolonged trials to sort of see if they could step in for Delaney and Mitten. And they were the likes of Brian Birch, 12 uh, appearances in all competitions, five goals, four in eight in the league. Cliff Burkett, I'm going to bring up on the screen here, scored in his second game, which was a win over Huddersfield. Mm-hmm. Also scored in a January win over Charlton. He was a Haydock born forward who came through the ranks. But this was his only season in the first team through seven years at the club from training until he was transferred. Um, 13 appearances, two goals, nine and two in the league. Tommy Bogan from a previous episode, three goals in 11 games in the league. Laurie Cassidy and Frank Clemson made one and two appearances, uh, respectively. And then you've got Jimmy Delaney, who, before he moved, made one uh, scored one goal in 13 games. Then you had the front line, Stan Pearson, top scorer this season, 23 goals in all competitions, 18 in the league in 39 games. Rowley, who's predominantly been the top scorer, goes down to second, well, third actually behind Aston this time round, 15 in all competitions and 14 in 39 in the league. 
Uh, Pearson, by the way, doing well in the FA Cup with five goals in four games. John Downey, 29 goals in 10 league appearances. And the final forward in this season was Harry McShane. He arrived in a swap deal with John Ball, who made a few appearances for United from Bolton. Um, he was effectively the replacement for Bird on the outside left, wasn't he, Paddy? Um, he yeah. had the speed and the agility that he needed, even though he was, he was 30, so he was knocking on a little bit. Yes, uh, he was. And uh, uh, Harry McShane, uh, of course, was had a, had a wee boy uh, <laughs> called Ian. And uh, Ian McShane, I, I often wonder whatever happened to him. Yeah. He was, of course, <laughs> Lovejoy. He made a, 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 a tremendous career, which is still going on um, as, a, as an actor. And, uh, and, 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 of course, a great Manchester United fan. Uh, but yes, Harry McShane, decent, uh, decent player, and um, you know, very much one who helped to carry uh, United over over the difficult over the difficulties in fifty one, fifty two. Well, they still have some of the forty eight side. Um, so it's it's a quite interesting to hear you talk about about Pearson, about um, certainly Delaney early season. Um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Rowley still in there, Chilton still in there, uh, Aston still in there, Carey still in there. So really, the spine of the team is is still intact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, McShane with seven goals in thirty-one appearances, thirty in the league this season. I'm just going to run through the tactics because obviously, with all this coming and going, there's a little bit of a change. I'm going to put this first screen up here to sort of go yeah. through. Um, this is basically the 11 this season is a guide based on the most frequent performances, but there was a lot of deputising and moving around. Yeah. Um, Billy McGlenn played a fair number of games, and once Delaney was gone on from that right hand side, he did have the likes of Birch, Burkett, and Bogan giving giving runs there. And Aston, as I'll come to in a moment, yeah, that run at number nine, and Rowley played in 11 with <coughs> Shane on the right as well. So that's how they lined up for a signal win over Huddersfield. Have, have you got Johnny Downey's? Um, because bear in mind, he was the player with whom Busby had tried to replace Johnny Morris. Uh, how many appearances and goals in the season? Um, 10 in, in 29 in the league. So he, he was yeah. definitely. So he did, he, did, he did actually have a, an influence over the season. He often gets overlooked because he wasn't as didn't have the impact of his predecessor Morris. But uh, yeah, that's a, a tidy contribution from Johnny Downey to the season. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is uh, a little bit of the shift here. You see Redmond coming in at left back and yeah. McLean playing his uh, fair performances at right off there. Uh, Pearson and Downey switching inside forward positions basically, and which they did because they changed the shirts. And as we said in earlier episodes. Once you change the shirt number, that's where you were on the pitch. Um, Aston playing at number nine there. Um, and clearly, I mean, you, you can see, I mean, even though they win 6-0 to finish second in the league, a good win over Huddersfield towards the end of the season, you can see some forward problems in that line there. And Busby is about to make a couple of big decisions there. Um, we'll just show you the squad picture as well. Um, for that season, <laughs> a lovely sort of crammed in picture on the back of his shed. Um, United's colours didn't change uh, this season. They never changed over the series, have they really? Red, white no. and black and uh, blue, white and black in the change stripe as well. Yes. Uh, the key results, as we talked about earlier, probably being that week where they played Birmingham and Arsenal, 
where Busby had showed conviction in his opinion to go against the press opinion and sort of say, look, I'm still going to put these kids in and I'm going to put another one in against Arsenal just to, to prove a point. <coughs> um, you would generally look against an individual result and say that from the turn of the year, United were losing just one more game from that point. Uh, well, two, if you include the cup. That was a, a major turning point in the momentum that Busby was building um, after he'd come over that difficult uh, start of the season. As Elsewhere in England, as Paddy's already alluded to, Spurs won the league playing some fantastic football. Newcastle won the FA Cup by defeating Blackpool. Imagine that, Spurs and Newcastle winning trophies in the same season. Uh, I'm not having a go Spurs and Newcastle fans. It's just crazy to think when you think about um, the, the time those fans have waited for them both to get... Um, Trophies with um, hugely entertaining teams as well, um, teams with great reputations as well. Manchester City were also promoted back into the top division alongside Preston, who'd won the second flat, uh, second division, um, I think second flight. I'm not sure that's right, is it? Um, but yeah, that's how the, the lay of the land was at um, the end of the season that time round. Um, United now planning for the 51-52 season and Busby hoping that um, finally he can exercise those ghosts of second place and make a a proper challenge for the title um, and we'll be back to cover that one um, very shortly um, if you're watching this video please give it a like and subscribe and join in the conversation in the comments section as well if you are listening on the audio podcast be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on thanks for watching guys and listening and we'll be back next time